Hi, this is Ryan Fraser. This is Troy Daly. This is Gus Boyet. This is Don Hutchison. This is Jürgen Klopp, and you're listening to The Big Interview with Graham Hunter. Thank you, Jürgen. I travel to all these interviews from Barcelona, and our socios, our beloved members, keep us on the road. This independent podcast wouldn't happen without them. Please go to patreon.com forward slash Graham Hunter right now to join us, to become a socio, and to get every interview we produce without adverts and before it goes out on the main feed, plus lots of bonus content, including the chance to put questions to our guests and to me via the monthly Q&A. So do please go to patreon.com forward slash Graham Hunter and join the club and get your family and friends to do so. Maybe even strangers in the street. Love you. Well, we're back. We're back with Ian Cathro. I promise you, part two is at least as interesting, at least as good as part one. Ian is somebody who inspires us at the big interview. Tremendously inquiring mind. Somebody who's willing to take risks, to develop himself. Somebody who has learned Portuguese to a native standard and is fluent in other languages, but who is above all deeply fluent in how to educate footballers, how to train, and at the top level too. Here in part two, we're going to hear about, in no particular order, the remarkable happenstance that meant that he was coaching at Rio Ave with both Ederson and Jan Oblak. How did the coach choose between them? In this episode, we're also going to hear about how Nuno, Espirito Santo, and our guest Ian Cathro, planned the downfall of the first Carlo Ancelotti reign at Real Madrid when Real Madrid had won 22 on the trot, came to Mestalla in January 2014 and were sent home pointless by the end of the season. That cost them the league and indeed it cost Carlo Ancelotti his job. Ian talks about how they planned to help Valencia beat Real Madrid. There are long sections on what it's like to work with Nuno, what he's like, and a real favourite of ours. Conor Cody was a guest on the big interview, and here Ian Cathro explains a lot about Conor Cody the man, the footballer, the user of the ball, the solution producer. This, I think, is vintage big interview. Ian Cathro has been a man that has attracted, I think, a lot of incorrect opinions. He's a man of huge talent and potential. The big interview considers him a friend and it was wonderful to share this time with him. I hope you now reap the benefits. Explain and describe Nuno Espirito Santo, because we're going to end up talking a little bit about your, you know, the man who believes in you and wants to continue working with you and with whom you've worked a lot. But because we've got a mutual contact who worked really close with him and took time to understand him, and because it's clear that he gives up a certain personality when he's interviewed by the media, which all of us know, being interviewed with the media can be 90%, 80% curse and 
20-10% blessing. You don't see the real Nuno Espiritu Santo, but he's a big ca- character now in continental yeah. and in British football terms. So without trade secrets, explain Nuno Espiritu Santo, your version of him. Really good guy, really good person, exceptional leader. I, and I know that's a short answer, but I think that... No, but that why? What, what makes him an exceptional leader? I think, and I, I would suggest he's probably said this himself, was that the nature of his career gave him the opportunities to become that leader. And I, and I also think that he became that leader even while still a player, to the extent where probably towards the end of his career, he was the guy that coaches would love to have maybe as the third goalkeeper. But the function that he would have had for, for that team and that squad would have been that of a leader. Knowing how to look after a group knowing how to just make sure that the group stays together at different stages in the season after defeats or away games or maybe say there's been two or three weeks where there's been a lot of hotel stays and somebody gets fed up with something. These things are always happening. As a player, I imagine he probably took 40% of the job away from the coach hmm. by, by leading, the, leading the group. We've had a guest in this series, Phil Neville, who was pretty intimidated by no, no. And I think a lot of people begin that way. Yeah. Is that a natural part of what Nuno exudes? Is it used as a little trick to filter people? Is it just because he's tall and big and saturnine? How would you assess that? You know, a lot of times when I, when I hear that people are intimidated by other people, I, I start thinking to myself, ask yourself that question first. <laughs> Why are you intimidated by this other person? That's where I'd be going with that. I don't see a reason for that to have been the case. I think if, if, if someone at this level of the game that we, that we work in and have all kind of shared different experiences across, if, if they encounter someone and are intimidated by that person and maybe got a little bit of work to do on themselves. You don't intimidate easily, do you? No. Does, does he like your style of coaching? Because I think you're, you're quite a hands-on coach. You're a coach that likes to... Generate interactions. If it was necessary, you, you'll challenge a player, won't you? I've grown up, I've always been a coach. When, when I've worked on staffs, and I, I try to just do everything that I can to help us win. And naturally, everybody goes back to where their main skills are, and, and, and I'm on the pitch. And I'm honest. There's a fire inside where as soon as the ball rolls, and I, I, that's how it is. You know, I want to work, I want to compete. I want everybody to get the absolute maximum out of themselves that they can. And if that results in challenge, it results in challenge. But, but that only comes after relationships are formed. You don't get that kind of image that we're maybe painting of, of hands-on and, and fiery and challenging and provoking until you've developed the good human relationship with people. But at that point, if you think somebody's not delivering? Absolutely. Always tell the truth. There's, you will never be wrong when you tell the truth. And the truth could be your view, and, and, and the player could have a view. We, we're competing at such a high level. If training sessions are, uh, are wishy-washy, nothing's going to work. So let, let's focus on training a little bit. Either you, I mean, please pick any of the regimes that you've enjoyed. But like, f- what we've learned over this series of interviews is that there are more challenges and opportunities in, in being in a top-level coaching team, particularly, let's say, your club is either under deep pressure of maybe going down or, worse still, you've got three games a week because you're playing competitively in the league, the cup, but also you're playing European football. 
Mm, I mean, I would guide you because there was a lot of time spent there. Let's say at Wolves, and Wolves aren't accustomed to playing European football. So you're playing successfully, because if I'm not wrong, you went to the semi-finals of the Europa League? Quarter-finals. Uh, Quarter-finals. Quarter which have been the first time for Wolves since the early 70s when okay, they won the first Cups. When you sit down and you've got so many things to plan ahead in a space of time where you have to think about players' availability, players' tiredness, travel, recuperation days, or how to uh, restore players' ability to compete here, you're dealing with the impossibility of competing well three days, three games per week over a six-week period where you might do that three times. You've got um, different strategies to impart about when we press, when we don't press, whether um, today is 4-3-3 or we're playing three at the back and wing backs or this opposition or that player. You've got so much to achieve and so much to impart. When you're beginning to sit down and lay this out, amongst yourselves before you take it to the group can you try and describe that process to those that are listening and watching the challenges the opportunities and what you've yeah. learned about it I joined Wills when they'd been promoted to the Premier League so they'd already had the first season in the Championship and what I walked into was an incredible group of players and, and, and I mean that more so in how they were with each other and how they worked with each other and how they operated and how, they, uh, how the relationships were. The, the, the dynamic in that group was amazing. And a, a staff that had obviously been successful and that's the recipe for all the ills in the world is winning games of football. But throughout that period of time, after a few days I could see that throughout the whole building there was trust you know, sports science was trusted by the players. The the chef was trusted to deliver this. The the, the admin was tr- trust was everywhere. Clarity was everywhere, and uh, people looking in could see how the team played. There was there's lots of subtle details that people don't quite give credit to, but there was consistency, there was clarity, there was conviction, and there was a lot of success. That's a big big part of giving you a really, really strong base to then take on any challenge because you know that in the worst case, this is only going to fall to this level. This isn't, this isn't crumbling. We're not crumbling because we've, we've built something and these guys are connected and these guys are together and these routines are installed. And with respect to recovery, the players trust that what they're being asked to do is going to help. They trust that the gym work is helping them improved they, they, they believed in everything and there was a, a great level of trust already there and, and that was when I walked in the door and I, and I witnessed it I think with respect to that journey these things are always easier when you're doing things for the first time there's an extra something when you're doing something for the first time you know so you're up to the Premier League it's your first season up to the Premier League there's an extra something there you know we we're competing to be in the in the top ten. Can, can, you know, that was an, that was another thing, the FA Cup situation, which was disappointing. But then we we finished, we qualify for Europa League. Europa League again is another new thing. I would suggest, as a coaching staff, doing that season with the Europa League for maybe the fifth or sixth time, not necessarily in a row, but over a period of time, will be a lot more difficult than what it was for us because we just had positive energy in the building. Desperate eagerness, anticipation, yes, fresh. Just enthusiasm. Oh, you've got to play on Thursday night. Brilliant, let's go. That was the attitude. And that was that was the approach that everyone had. So a combination of, of the journey being continuing, the energy and the enthusiasm that that brought, 
plus with all of the work that had been done in, in that first year that, that I wasn't a part of, but I, I witnessed and I saw immediately, that put everybody in a really good place. And the relationships, the characters, the guys in the, in, in the changing room, the way that the staff and the players interacted was really, really good. Really good. That allowed us to to deal with these things in a really positive way. You said a phrase that I believe in about um, victory is the medicine for everything, but it's still, whether you feel any responsibility for it or not, there was still an extraordinary ability to avoid injuries, recuperate quickly from injuries, keep players on the park at roles in that, in that period. Mm-hmm. Well, when you look at it, look back at it, um, how would you define that? One, is that true to... How did it happen? Because it's, it is the magical elixir of modern football. I'll say it, you don't have to, because right now the football authorities have absolutely no interest in how much they're burning out footballers. That's, that's something you can't change. So within those parameters, how did you do it, do you think? I'm not the best place guy to answer that question, so I'll start with that disclaimer, because uh, that, that's a part where I'm by no means an expert in. What I'm an expert in is how players interpret what's being asked of them. <laughs> I can talk to that and and what I say to that is that they trusted explicitly that everything that they were being asked to do was going to have a positive impact and they experienced it having a positive impact so there was very very early on a combination of perhaps the additional work that they would maybe do in the gym that they believed probably was different to them in in that first year combined with the the additional and probably also more specific and, and different recovery work that they were doing. They believed quickly, they trusted the process quickly, and from that point, it just spread to being, this is what we do. That's something that, when, when the player trusts what they're being asked to do and associate that, okay, so I do this, and then, and then I feel good on that day, and then we play on that day, and I play well and I've got energy even when it comes to the end of the game when we need to push because we've stayed in the game for 70 minutes and we push in the last bit and then we win. Oh, well, right, so it's Monday. You asked me to do that again. I'll do that. No problem. Benefits, self-benefits are a big part of it. Well, it's how we all work, isn't it? And then the, yeah, and then the whisper ways. to one another about the benefits rather than mocking if they've got to wear big pressurised trousers and they're playing back from Greece. Yeah, yeah, for no example. doubt, no doubt. Because football's a culture whereby initially when you bring that type of anything that's odd it's a field day yeah. because you don't just live by ability or your, your what's your fat ratio pinching it yeah, yeah. it's about the quickness of your banter and can you yeah. and something like well, that that would have been me I would have been walking up the corridor and the thing oh, where'd you get those trousers <laughs> but, and I allowed myself that space because it wasn't my responsibility to convince them to put them on and that's going to make the difference so I maybe played a, a slightly different role in that respect but at, at the whole time even that is a way of... But it is a true example. Every corner code, he talked to us about it. And he backed up what you're saying. He was like, well, you, you put these strange things on and they you work. F- you feel better. And when I feel better, I'm, you know, life becomes a little bit easier. Let's, let's stop at corner Cody for a second or two, if you don't mind. Sure. It felt like... Um, it still feels to this day, although it's a different regime coaching him, although it seems to be uh, uh, another very successful Portuguese coach with really clear ideas yeah. and enjoy- enjoyable ideas yeah. about you know what football should look like. It wasn't simply playing him in three centre-backs or wing-backs that made him emerge as the player that he probably always was, even as a youth at Liverpool, 
there must, or it seems like from a distance, there was an appreciation of who he was, what his abilities were, that you could build some of your system changes about. Because quite often you did play three at the back, didn't you, mm. with wing backs, and he was one of those. And what's emerged, or again, it feels like it, is that people, because Britain is a culture that often likes football in theatrical terms. So who's a good guy? And Connor's very presentable and articulate and quick and likeable, which doesn't necessarily speak very well to the fact that he's a really good footballer. Yeah. He is all of those things. He's a fantastic ca- character. He has a, a wonderful way with people. To, to, he likes the, the young player. I know very recently, Luke Cundall made his debut. And um, I think my wife actually showed me something on Wolves' Instagram account of, of, of Connor with Luke before the game giving him you know, an arm round the shoulder and, and the other picture of him after the game lifting him up in the sky and I witness that every day and that, that, that there's, there's, there's human and personal skills in that that are, that are magnificent but he's also a very, very good footballer and the way in which the way in which the Wolves team was, was built offensively he had such an important role in it arguably the most important role in it for, for how he would anticipate the way in which the other team would press us. So at what points are they going to try and press our circulation? Are they going to try and press our circulation with the centre-backs on the sides? Are they going to wait until our circulation reaches the wing-back at the widest point? Are they going to maybe allow us to play midfielders and then try and jump on us after the midfielder maybe plays the ball back to us? And all the time through kind of talking through these scenarios or, or experiencing the way different teams would try to play against us, because we were a predictable team. So teams were able to analyse us but, well. But his anticipation of their anticipation conditions his pass. He learned the solutions. Along with, along with us. And obviously with, 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 with Nuno directing the ship, understanding what's likely to come there for these solutions are there. But, but, but Connor done exceptionally well at reading how that moment of the game was going to come. Are they going to come here at this angle? Are they going to allow me to give it to, to Bolly? And then, oh, if the ball comes back, is the striker going to try to jump to me? All of these things he had the solutions ready for, whether it was an extra touch to make him think that I'm going to roll it to the centre-back and then I'll hold, and then you'll worry that I might clip it out to the wing-back and then you'll worry about that and you'll start to run and now I'll give it to my centre-back. Or you wait on the moment where the ball's coming round, he opens his body up, he can see that he's just starting to get ready to make a sprint to the centre-back and I'll clip it out to the full-back. And he learned that, and he'd done that expertly well. It feels he also speaks about it on the pitch. He feels like he's one of those guys who's dispensing knowledge, not just with his body position or his passing, but it's yeah. like, we're a unit, yeah. and I'm going to keep you up he's to date with where we pitch. should be. Yeah. Connor's a coach on the pitch. He's a coach on the pitch. That's that, still that's relatively that. rare. I would say so. I think I think the system helps in a lot of ways. I think it probably gives them a little bit more headspace, time-wise, tiny bit more time to try and put those messages across to, to take things. And I think that helps. Um, but he 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 does that expertly well. So much so that there was actually a stage in the season where it felt like teams were thinking, well, how do we stop Wolves? We put a striker on Conor yeah. Cody. And they tried to block <laughs> him straight. We man-marked the centre-half. Yeah, that was how you, how you stop Wolves. You, 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 block, you block Cody, because then he can't play these passes, and he can't play these ones, and then it's harder for them to get the midfield. Did he evolve when that began to happen? Did he make it? Yeah, well, I, remember, I remember there was a period of time where, like everything in football, somebody does it, 
either has success or perceived of success every other analyst in the country has watched the game four times round and they go okay well here's an idea for when we play against Wolves next week boss so it, it kind of became a bit of a thing and what, what we discovered and what he felt as well himself was that if he now he plays quite low on the pitch anyway but if he went a little bit lower then the distance that the strike between the opponent's striker and the next midfield player that would need to get close to the striker to make any real Every pressure Every problem is an us, opportunity for somebody else. Then we found so much space for, for Ruben or Joan when they come down to the to just the side positions of Connor that they couldn't block both. And he recognised that. So if he felt like the striker was going to come and block me, OK, well, I go back 10 yards. But even if you're Connor Connor, Connor Cody with a bright brain and a nice passing range... And good coaches, you, you've named two assets if you're talking about Rune Nevis and John Moutinho. Yeah. If, if those are two of your you know, triangle outpasses, it helps a it lot. Helps. I mean, in it different helps. ways, for my taste at least, two extraordinary players. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Really, really. What's your experience of working with them? Two, at, at different points in, in their careers. Hugely. Um, I have a, a, a remarkable admiration and respect for both. With respect to the different, you, you see different things. Um, Joan was has such a, a competitiveness in every aspect, which is which is remarkable to be able to do that year on year on year on year on year. Always thinking, always pushing, always encouraging, always with his own ideas going round in his head to try and come up with solutions. A really, really wonderful top player. And Ruben, I think Ruben was. It was probably the one player in my first few weeks where often he's different. In that squad, there ended up being quite a few guys who I would say that about, to be honest. But, Just uh, what was his difference? The subtlety of his passing. Obviously, we, you, you see the quality when the ball comes into him, but the, the little subtleties that he puts on passes. He had, he had a relationship with Diogo that was, obviously, they, they, they played together a lot of times, but the ball wouldn't be... The ball wouldn't even be at the guy who was going to give it to Ruben, and you already knew it was going to Diogo. <laughs> and that's because it's because a pattern's formed and it's became automatic through time, and because probably they get on well and they talk about it and it's shared and it's been success. All of those things. Everything counts. But also because players only consistently make big runs in games when they trust the quality of the player that's going to need to deliver that ball, and everybody in that team would make runs and do no matter what distance it needed to be or whatever space they needed to leave to go into when they thought the ball's going to Ruben I trust them so I'll give them this Before the rest of this big interview I'd like to tell you that our entire archive of audio and video content is now on our new YouTube channel We've begun filming all of our interviews, and there are already loads of clips with guests, including Rio Ferdinand, Connor Cody, Brendan Rogers, and Jamie Carragher, plus full interviews for you to watch and to share. Please do share with friends. Go to YouTube and search Graham Hunter, or click on the link in the show notes to this episode and become a subscriber. I honestly think you'll enjoy it. Thanks. Our sponsors, Bet365, have got another difficult question, um, easier than the last one. 
you worked with at Rio Ave, um, a hard-working, tough little club that wasn't used to success. You took them into Europe. You and Nuno, you working yeah, not on Nuno, me, not me. You the group. Yeah. Don't worry. Yeah. I remember that Nuno might be listening, and you took them to cup finals. But you were <laughs> you worked with Edison and and Jan Black, a Brazilian and a Slovenian, born in the same year, months apart, and currently and for several years now, to the best goalkeepers in the world. Describe the process of getting to know them and work with them and how the hell did both of them arrive at the same club, go on again to the same club and then split their destinies and become, you know, the best world dominant goalkeepers. Two different guys. I, 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 I can't tell you the backdrop as to what brought them, brought them to Rio Ave, but Portuguese football in general, I think, is a, is a, is a great finishing school. You know, I, I really do think about. I, I, I watched games recently, and I, I watched the the Porto Sporting game recently, which turned into that. That was everything bad with 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 Portuguese football. A, bit of a tough one for Pepe's continuing career. Mm, I, I think there's yeah. some challenges in there, and I, a couple I, of years. I'm sure, there's a, perhaps a, a steward who maybe needs to come up with a new a new job for himself as well. <laughs> All sorts going on. For those who didn't yeah, this follow it, we'll, we'll, we'll come back to it later, yeah. but. But what Arthur Montfort used to say it was a bit of a, 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 a rammy, or to the extent that Pepe, for his behaviour, I think he lamped a sporting director, and he faces a two-year ban. But hey, yeah. finishing schools, so, so that finishing has, schools can have yeah. lots of different meanings. Indeed, it can. Indeed, it can. He's but finished. The, 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 the talent, <laughs> the talent in, in the Portuguese league, players and coaches, I think is really, really high. And scouting. Definitely, yeah, definitely, and obviously, then you've got the markets that they're, that they're bringing in. Uh, Jan was, I probably for for a couple of reasons maybe had a bit of a closer relationship with him that we were still we went to Portuguese classes together for the first little while. I agree. Trying to trying to get into it, and we, we kind of both at the same time kind of looked at each other and thought, I don't want to learn what I need to ask for at the supermarket. So. <laughs> We'll just stop this, and we'll, we'll, you know, we'll just dive into it, and life will teach us, which is what we ended up doing. But um, I probably spent more time deeply getting to know. Describe, John. People that listen to this don't have the privilege that you, and to a smaller extent, I have of meeting these people and actually seeing the people behind this football skills. Yeah. All Black seems to me to be um, a, a, a quieter guy when he needs to be, but a leader character. His English is very good. Throughout his childhood, he showed a tremendous devotion to getting better because he used to cycle yeah, yeah. 60 kilometres <laughs> every four, three days to go to and from training because his parents couldn't take him and that was the only way he could get there when he was a kid. And he became a guy who moved from Benfica to Aleti and in the first four or five weeks, he had the president of Benfica say, saying to the world, uh, Atleti think he's rubbish and they want to sell him back to us and he then became literally the stingiest goalkeeper in the world and, and went about three seasons without making a mistake yeah. and became champion of Spain so tell us about the Jan Oblak you met I'll tell a little story which probably paints the picture really 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 well everybody knows that there are some days in training where you just need the players to relax you've done a little bit of work but you know, today's session just needs to be relaxed and light and I must admit I was also at a stage where I found this difficult because you know, I wanted to coach the life out of everyone. I was this the young, naive guy. So training sessions set up. The, the players pick their own teams. They can play wherever they wish. But it's, it's to have fun. It's to play. You know, just, just play. Just have fun. Jan didn't like those training sessions. <laughs> 
he did not enjoy those training sessions. Lads, have fun, play a bit, relax, do as you please. Oh, it wasn't for him. He had such a, a, a strong mentality of work and, and very black and white. Very black and white with respect to here is how things have to be, here is how I'm going to work, here is how I achieve my goals and this is what I'll do. And I, I think he had a, such a, a maturity at that stage that uh, it was very, very obvious that he was ready to, to take steps. He almost already had that resilience that he clearly needed in that situation that you just described. Mm-hmm. I, I witnessed that level of resilience in him already before he even was exposed to any situation that he would need it in. But he'd clearly been preparing himself so intensely for, for all of these situations to, to excel and we, 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 we trusted them like not. How did Nuno choose between them? And upon what criteria? Jan was much more ready to play at that point with, with respect to the, the paths that they were on Jan was much more ready and I think what's important to mention uh, it's not uh, the goalkeeper coach Rui Barbosa who went with you to Wolves? Yes, yes, and, and, and continued that he's, he's now worked with some of the best goalkeepers in the world. But I think um, without being a goalkeeping expert and without telling other people's stories for them, I, I, I think he had quite an important role to play in, in that finishing school part for um, probably more so for Ederson. I think the games and, and playing with us was the biggest thing that helped Jan. But that, that year... Of, of perhaps not playing as much and, and the work that he'd done he he grew up a lot in that year Is it easy to recognise the Edison not now but over the last couple of years at Manchester City because again the lads that were with that produced this podcast commissioned a book about life at Manchester City and Edison comes out as one hell of a He's a fun guy. He'd be guy. dangerous to be around. He's a fun guy. There were he's people who were rugby guy. tackled by this big beast of a yeah. man who didn't know they were going to be rugby tackled. No, he's... He, I, what I remember as a lovely kid that loved football and, and, and lived life. He's Brazilian. He's happy. He sees the joy in life. You know, maybe we should learn a little bit about that every now and then. Where do you find the most satisfaction what you've done so far? When the word satisfaction, I, I'd go right back to the beginning. And, and I would talk about the... The impact that I think that not just I, but the, the people that worked with me, and and also the, the young kids that were part of this group, and also the families around them, that we, that we managed to to do something that I, I honestly felt at the time, and I, I I continued to to feel this way now that maybe just had had a, had a group of young kids just believe that they could do a little bit more in life mm. than what they. Th- perhaps thought prior to being part of that you know football's my thing I love football that's that will that will be what I do until uh, until the day I die but we're also you know we're people aren't we and and I, I like to I like to be able to to make a difference and and to to have an effect and to to do things that can maybe just make things a little bit better and that period of time we we definitely done that and that that's I, I, I take satisfaction from that, I genuinely do. It's an extraordinary answer, and it's a lucky man at your age with so much more to achieve to be able to give that as your answer. I think that's pretty special. Carlo Ancelotti would like his old job back, please. <laughs> you, you, you and Nuno ruined life for him. What was it, 22 straight wins or 22 games unbeaten? They come to Mestaya, and I don't know if, if you think 
Madrid got a bit undressed tactically. I think they did. I think that Florentino Perez thought that. And they ended up not winning the title that season. And the previous season, they'd only won, you know, the World Club Championship and the Super Cup and all the Champions League. And suddenly, because they tripped up and lost the title by a couple of points, but the, the breakdown happened, yeah. which is not your responsibility for Madrid at Mestalla. And it's an excuse to say, do you remember coaching for, planning for that game? Do you remember the atmosphere in the city, in your neighbourhood, at Paterna, when you're building... Because Valencia don't like Madrid. It goes back to Pedro Mijatovic. Yeah. It's just not regional club against big club. Back in the 90s, they felt that Mijatovic was stolen. I want to know about that experience, planning for it, watching it in-game and winning. I remember watching the games in the build-up to that. So watching Madrid's games in, in the build-up to that. And I don't remember the exact midfield three, but it was... I by no means mean any disrespect to Mr Ancelotti. But... I think it was a, a little bit of a, a shirt-selling midfield, if you know what I'm saying. And I think Florentino was probably aware of that. I think it, I think he was, there was some midfield lineups. It was maybe more about how, mon- how many shirts were going to be sold with those particular names. Well, in in the match prior to you beating them at Mestalla, they'd beaten Sevilla two one, and in midfield they had Sami Kadira, Tony Cruz, James Rodriguez, not the world's hardest worker, very gifted. Oh, Isco, the player. Isco. Yeah, so I think what I remember was was Hamez and Isco as two of the three midfielders. Yep. And I think that's what we anticipated playing against. Now, uh, in function of that, you also had the front three. That that was a game where we opted to play with the back three. And then the question is, there's a back three and there's a back three. So the, the question is always what your wing-backs do and what are the reference points for your wing-backs? And at what points in this does the game start to break for us and what points in the hmm. this does the game start to break for them so we felt that the game could break for us the more the ball went through the middle of the pitch Do you like, I'll give you your 11 yeah. just to remind you because it's a couple of years ago yeah, you've done a, a few things so just in no particular order you've got Diego Alves you've got Orban a limited player I think Mustafi Baragan Otamendi partnering Mustafi as one of the as two of the centre backs uh, Danny Parejo, Enzo Perez, Andre Gomez, Alvaro Negredo, Paco Alcacer, Pablo Piatti. Piatti lasted 26 minutes, after which he was replaced by the wonderful Gaia. Rodrigo came on and Feguli, hard worker, interesting player, came on. And you faced Casillas, Pepe, Sergio Ramos at right-back, Marcelo at left-back. Danny Carvalho now, Sergio Ramos at centre-back with Pepe, Marcelo at left-back, Danny Carvalho, Cruz, James, Rodriguez, Isco... And up front, as you said, those three, for yeah, those who've forgotten, yeah. it's the BBC, as yeah. they're known in, yeah. in, in Spain, which is Benzema Bale and Cristiano Ronaldo. Yeah. The big question uh, in a lot of these situations is how brave are you going to choose to be? Mm. And how do you see what, what's going to tip the momentum one way or the other? And what we felt could tip the momentum in our direction was, was the middle of the pitch. So we, we had our midfield three of Enzo, uh, Danny and Andre. And we felt that the more the ball gets run through there, that we would be able to try and pick up some momentum with, with the two strikers of, of, of Paco and Alvaro and maybe just trying to keep the pitch a little bit more open. But what that means is that we needed to send... We, we started with, with, with Piatti on the left, who's, who's a winger, mm-hmm. playing as the wing-back, and uh, Antonio on the right. That meant that their references needed to be to go and play against the full-backs which, of course, leaves you with your three against, as we put it, those three. The BBC. 
So, so if, if Cristiano and Bale move, or Benzema and Bale move yeah, wide, and your full backs, your wing backs aren't there. Our centre backs were defending the full width of the pitch. They had to defend the full width of the pitch, and that was the that's the point where you know that when you're out of sync, or if you allow them to play the ball into those players on a certain line that you don't want, you're going to have a problem. But if we could make the ball come out to the full back and we were able to block that and it needed to go into the middle before it could go to those three, we felt that would give us enough time for, for our back line to be able to deal with that across the width of the pitch. And also that we had athleticism and we had energy and, and, and with the atmosphere and the feeling, the, the emotional part of the game, we felt like the that ball makes a difference. through the middle. No, to, to, players, I've often asked this question, but to you as coaches, you, you play on a small amount of the atmosphere, giving the, the decision to be brave slightly more wings because the Mestalla has a cauldron against Madrid. Yeah. That, that, that yeah. is part of your equation? I think it is, yes. I'm, I'm going to say that it, it's, not, it's not a part of the equation every week. But you always know when it's part of the equation. And that might be because of a run of results. It might be because of a certain opponent. It might be because there, there is an expectation that you always start the game in a certain way. Mm. I, I certainly wouldn't say it's an every week part of the conversation. But you know there are moments that day they're with when us. We, we need to do this for them because yeah, yeah, we okay. need them. Yeah, okay. Yeah. And I think this was one of those days. And, and making the ball need to go through the middle of the pitch uh, was was a key part. Is it anecdotal? I mean, this, this is testing your memory, so I apologise, but mm. I'm fascinated. Is it anecdotal that one one left wing back, Gaia, who come on for Piatti, makes the goal for the other wing back, which is Baragan, and that Nicholas Otamendi scores the winner after 65? So two, they're not defenders. But it's, there aren't, they aren't goals from the midfield, they're not goals from the strikers. Is that anything to do with the way in which you decided you'd play Madrid? You've got the structure of the team. I remember Nico's goal, which was a corner, and he had, he had an incredible timing and leap. He's not, when he's not actually the biggest no, he's of not, guys, is he? You, you ask him to, to time and leap, he, he will get above you. He, he has such a tenacity and, and hunger and desire for those things. It was, it was incredible. And, and of course that was kind of matched up as to how the game was what the reference points for our wing backs were which was higher up the pitch mm-hmm. so naturally when we're perhaps they've gone to press in that position that forced the ball to come into the middle of the pitch we were making more recoveries of the ball with, with Andre or with Enzo and we've already got the wing backs in positions where they could go and be involved in the play once it goes to the striker so the flow of the game kind of had that to it but I think one of one of the things and, and, and this was one of the 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 biggest skills in, in, in Nuno's decision making for what the profile of that Valencia team was going to be it, it wasn't going to be another Spanish team who wants to you know, show, the, show the typical profiles of, of the high possession the, the possession takes us into the, to the final third of the pitch we play there, we play the short passes we demonstrate patience so, all, all the things that I think typically if you ask you throw a ball on a bit of grass with 20 Spanish kids, that's what happens. You take the same ball and you throw it on a bit of grass with 20 British kids, a different thing happens. So I'm, I'm probably referring to that. We, we, we didn't want that explicitly. He wanted athleticism, he wanted energy, he wanted dynamism. Because this was a time where, where Valencia as a club were probably in a bit of a mess. And they were desperate to... to kind of re-establish themselves as 
in the Champions League or you know at the very least in that, certainly in that question and, and to do that in a short period of time his decision was to, to, to build the team with that kind of mix and I think that's probably more relevant in, in the impact that Gaia had in, in a lot of situations and Antonio also uh, you know and that's that wasn't necessarily his natural characteristics you know, he was a bit more of a of a cautious defensive guy but it was the attitude of the team in order to overachieve it needed to be different changed La Liga and therefore to finish I have to say you know you found yourself in Paterna and Mastaya that day and you've achieved a lot so far with lots more to come but if I'm well guided and you've been one of the guides watching Spanish football was at least a not light in the dark but it was it was a guide for you when you were young and the availability of watching it on TV yeah. was something of an inspiration. And then you find yourself coaching yeah. it and knocking over yeah. the most yeah. famous club in history. Uh, one, is that true? Did, did Sky do you a, a small favour by, by making it available to you as a youngster? Definitely. Definitely, without any question. Again, a lot of things come down to timing, doesn't it? And, mm. and it, was, it was just ideal timing for me to have access to... Just seeing another way, you know. I, I remember times when I would probably be, you know, Saturdays and Sundays would be coaching youth teams at Dundee United, driving all, all around the country, and uh, say coaching at under 11s and under 12s on a Saturday, older teams on a Sunday. Typically, what I would do, I would finish either driving back to Dundee, or if it was in Dundee, I'd, I'd go to my parents for, uh, well, free food and drop the bag of washing in as you do, and. Spanish football would be on and it was almost like cleansing my mind of all the nonsense I heard and felt from other people throughout the day whilst I was trying to help kids learn to play football you know all these preconceived ideas of well we can write a long list of them so it was it was like obviously it's really good to get your washing done for you it was <laughs> talking about cleansing <laughs> it was nice to to have a hot meal that I wasn't cooking because I was not at a stage in my life where I would be doing that too frequently but to then walk in and know that the Sky Spanish football would be on and that I could sit and I could just reconfirm to myself that, no, look, this is how a ball moves around. You have to have two or three things that stood out in that era that, that clarified something, inspired something across all the teams or coaches or players that you were watching? Purely that it looked planned. Huh. Purely that it looked planned. Because sometimes we we look and the ball goes to the, to the full-back and the poor little lad shapes it into the corner you know that was probably the extent of the plan that I remember from that period of time whereas you watched that and you could see okay so the ball's going to go around to that side of the pitch but things are happening on the other side of the pitch that happened twice that happened before that's planned that's that's cool you know, how did they do that What's, why is he doing that Ian Cathro this has been enjoyable thank you likewise Thank you for listening to The Big Interview. It's produced by me, which sounds egotistical, but it's also true, Graham Hunter, and Backpage. Our music is by Beer Jacket, who else? Editing by Charlie McGarry. Thank you to our hosts at Acast and our loyal sponsors at Bet365. We're also supported by our socios. Find out how to become a socio, how to support us, at patreon.com forward slash Graham Hunter. Here endeth the lesson. 
When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program.